Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Milena Batsala Prayanas. Girl, you got a hard last name. <laughs> She's the co-founder and chief research and innovation officer of Menstrual Health Hub. Menstrual Health Hub is a female health nonprofit and social impact business out of Germany. They provide a variety of women-centered design and human rights-based business solutions. You are going to hear me and Milena laugh and laugh. We have a lot of chemistry. We had so much fun doing this interview. And we talked about some really interesting things like the relationship between gender equality and menstruation. We talked about women's health versus female health. Kind of the same, kind of different. Really, really interesting conversation. You can learn more and check out Menstrual Health Hub services at mhhub.org. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Milena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brittany. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's been really exciting working with you in partnership between Femtech Focus and Menstrual Health Hub. And I just had to get you on the podcast because you are definitely a thought leader in this industry. So I'm so excited to dig into what you think we need to be working on and what successes we have. Like, this is going to be so fun. Wonderful. Let's get going. Let's see the menstrual madness begin. Let the menstrual madness begin. I hope your menstruation has showed up to the episode, <laughs> to the interview. I'm actually currently menstruating. I will disclose my status. Oh, um, perfect. And yeah, whenever I'm um, speaking at events or in these kind of circumstances, she always comes along. So it kind of feels poignant, <laughs> if anything. So supportive. <laughs> it's so supportive of her <laughs> to always show up to your stuff. She just doesn't want me to be alone. Uh, the, the the feeling's not mutual, of, um, <laughs> if I'm completely honest. Um, but I do think there's something, I guess, this idea, like, you know, the periods don't stop, right? So no matter mm-hmm. what we kind of plan and want to do with our lives, we just kind of have to keep coping with them. Mm-hmm. It's like she's there to just remind you in case you forgot what it's like and you're speaking <laughs> on menstruation. She wants it to be real personal and in the moment, you know? Oh my gosh. Oh, I've got a couple of funny stories that I could tell you, but I, I think you're right. It's just, so we don't get, you know, I mean, I think that's so true because, you know, sometimes we end up talking about these things as like from a theoretical perspective, or like you said, like, you know, we, we work in this space. And so it's always this thing that we're talking about and advocating for. Um, but it is kind of that reminder of like, it, it's so deeply steeped in our personal experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's why most people work across the femtech space because there's some kind of personal story of, of how we came here. So maybe I should stop resenting my period whenever she comes when I'm going to be on some kind of discussion or panel because it's a kind of a reminder of like, you know, this this is something that's uh, really personal, right? Well, uh, tell our listeners about your background. So um, I started my career working in uh, the sexual reproductive health rights space, so implementing sexual reproductive health rights programs in Asia, uh, in East Africa, and sort of designing and, and delivering these complex programs um, with local partners. Um, and so I worked for the UN and a variety of different kinds of NGOs, um, and just was my, my goal in life has always been around kind of you know about addressing gender inequality. Um, and I think women's health is so critical to, to the, the gap that we see because a lack of knowledge um, for women, like, you know, in the inequity and the access to services and the kind of shame and stigma we have around our bodies. And so it's something that's always been really, really deeply personal. And I came to the issue of menstrual health really interestingly through child marriage. And that seems very strange when you hear it off the cuff, but uh, I was implementing uh, this program that was based in Malawi in India around trying to reduce child marriage. Um, I was spending time in, in the field, kind of talking with our local partners and with, you know, women and girls and like kind of really trying to understand what was working and not working in this program. And what I realized in the context of Malawi is that 
whilst whilst we as outsiders and foreigners were seeing these girl uh, these brides as girls, actually in their communities they were being seen as women as women, and that's because from the onset of monarchy, girls become a woman, right? So they're not marrying children; they're marrying women. It kind of opened up this whole space of like, what well, what else is happening around monarchy and menstrual health that none of us understand? Like this really is this kind of key moment in our lives where suddenly anybody, anywhere, we become like really gendered. We start being seen as like the potential for our bodies to, mm-hmm. to have babies and it really changes our experiences. That's why, you know, I, ran, I kind of ran this first training program um, with sort of girls in rural Malawi. And I remember being asked this question by one of the girls and she said to me like, why are you interested in, in our periods? And she's and I was like, well, you know, when I was your age, I was just so ashamed of my body, and it was so hard to manage it. And I just I didn't know what to do with this experience. And there was this kind of this collective silence, and then and there was just this rush in the room of, "What you feel the same way too? Like this is how girls in Australia feel? And what is it?" And I was like, "It's like this every everywhere." And it just kind of I guess changed my life in terms of realizing that you know, shame and taboo around our bodies, a lack of access to knowledge when it comes to sexual reproductive health is not a problem in developing countries. Like it is a problem that we can see in every single country around the world and that there's a disparity in terms of our access to services, our knowledge about our bodies, and then that impacts our, our lives. And so that's how I kind of came to, to realising that menstrual health and the menstrual cycle is just really, really critical um, to women's health across their whole life and how they feel about their bodies and how they understand it. Um, and if we can start doing a better job in at that point of like when the period begins, then I think we can probably improve a variety of other kinds of um, health challenges that women are going to face because they have a better a grounding, right? That, yeah. That's solid knowledge to start with. Wow. So you're working with these quote unquote child brides. You're realizing that culture is depicting a period as the moment a girl becomes a woman, you're realizing that shame is pervasive wherever you are in the world, regardless of socioeconomic status. So you get back to Australia and what do you do? Oh, I mean, (laughs) I actually was living in Holland at that point. Um, So I began um, on the side of working, doing a master's degree, specifically research menstrual practices. I'm really trying to understand kind of like, what are the different kinds of um, practices that are in place from social cultural norms that we see in different contexts? What, like, what's the kind of like hygienic ways in which people are, um, are you know, uh, are being able to manage their cycles and so forth? And so, um, I was doing this masters, and then I had the luck of being introduced. Uh, to Dan- one of my three co-founders, Danielle Kaiser. Um, and so she'd started the hub around three or four months previously um, in the menstrual health hub. Um, she was kind of like trying to get off the ground and kind of find, you know, the right niche spot for it. And so we were connected because someone told her, you should meet my friend Melina. She's like this men- crazy menstrual warrior. Um, <laughs> oh. She also at the same time was introduced to our third co-founder, um, Mariana. And so it was just this kind of incredible collective moment of like three individuals coming together who believed in women's rights and women's health um, and coming around this idea that Danielle had and, and, and really being invested in, in in building it together. And what was this degree you were getting? So I, oh God, it's just, it, they're just words. Uh, it was a multidisciplinary, uh, it's a, 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 what was it? A Masters of Philosophy, Multidisciplinary Gender Studies at Cambridge. So I had a background in international development and health, but I was like, I really want to understand um, like feminist and gender theory. Like I really want to understand the, the nuances um, of the different ways in which gender is kind of like pervasive through all elements of our lives. And then I'm really focusing on, um, for me, kind of menstrual health because that was the sort of like key issue that I wanted to explore yeah. further. And I think yeah. there's no issue better than um, menstruation when you're trying to really understand how gender um, and assumptions about our bodies and our experiences can, can fundamentally impact our lives. I love that. At Femtech Focus, we have been um, trying to figure out how can we infuse curriculum around women's health into different majors and degrees. So um, why do bioengineering majors not have a whole course on vagina uh, vagina models, you know? And why is menopause 
such a short course for OB-GYNs, right? Like they study so much about fertility, but only a small percentage, only a certain percentage of women have a baby, but all women have menopause. So why is that such a small lesson? You know, it's, it's mind numbing, but then again, like even within medical degrees, you spend very little time actually studying um, the the menstrual cycle, in particular, like women's hormones. So, I mean, mm. I think the average degree spends maybe a day or two of it, like just your your average medical degree around you know most around the world in most in most countries. Before those, you specialize. And if you think about the reality of how the menstrual cycle and our hormones impact our health holistically. Like, beyond just the period itself right um it it's completely insane that more attention is paid to it so i mean i love this idea of like how do we sneak periods in everywhere yes um we, i mean this is kind of the motto of danielle mariana and i which is like every room we're in we just throw the period bomb out there um to see how people respond and you know what i'll say people assume it's going to go really badly but it's interesting about how it does people aren't used to it but people ask questions and found particularly like men who you think would just kind of like clam up and just be like, I don't, don't want to hear about this. I don't want to know. Um, kind of really tentatively start sort of like asking little questions and end up saying things like, you know, my my girlfriend has extremely painful periods and she can't move from her bed from seven days. She doesn't like talking about it, but is that normal? And then, you know, having to say, I'm not a medical professional, but, you know, if you spend seven days in bed in severe pain, there are a variety of different um, illnesses or, or issues that could be happening down there. Um, and, like, here are some of the things that you could look at or here are some of the ways you could ask questions. Um, you could um, raise these questions with your girlfriend. And uh, it's really fascinating around how, being that crazy person in the room who talks about menstrual health, menopause, or sex, there's a level of discomfort, but it also allows people to kind of engage in conversations they don't normally um, do because there is such a taboo around yeah. it. So I don't know what's worse, um, period, sex, or money. But there's three <laughs> things that no one ever wants to talk about. And they are the three things I always talk about. <laughs> Yeah, my experience has been that, you know, bringing up these topics to men, they have been very receptive because and I think it's yeah. because I bring it up in a very approachable, educated, you know, not talking down, you know, essence, yep. you know, I have this energy that's like, hey, like, I'm interested in this and like, totally no shame if you have any questions, you know, and I, I've seen great, you know, response so far. So I, I don't think that people should be as nervous to, uh, talk about periods as you know we feel like we should be yeah no I completely agree with that and I mean even with the women in our lives a lot of women don't talk about it mm -hmm. either I mean I don't know do you have the, have you noticed that your friends now come to you as like a source of knowledge as well like, <laughs> I, I get this so they get asked a lot of medical questions um, and I'm always like I'm not a medical professional <laughs> however here are some thoughts or places where you can look for information and then I often go to Danielle I mean, Danielle's incredible in terms of the breadth of knowledge that she has. And I'll be like, hey, this thing happened. Can I talk about it with you just to know if I should go talk to a doctor? And what I find amazing about this is I think the ways that women share knowledge with each other, right, and how there's a, this trust. Um, but that also, like, there's we're terrified of having these conversations, right? Yeah. We either have medical professionals in our lives who cannot answer the questions and minimize our experiences and our pain, um, or we're just so scared. We don't have the language. Like we just don't have the capacity to even broach, broach mm -hmm. those subjects. And so when there's some point of in our life where someone has some kind of knowledge to be able to say, hey, can you, can you I have this thing, right? I, I have a mole. I don't know what it is. <laughs> or like my period blood looks like this. Is this okay? You know, and just being able to sort of like open up those spaces, I, I just – I think it's a an extraordinary gift that we can give to each other. And then it also tells us that there's sort of this gap that needs to be addressed in terms of um, the provision of information and then our access um, to health, like adequate, you know, accessible um, healthcare services um, yeah. and answer our specific questions, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and not just Dr. Google, but like actual medical professional opinions. Oh my God, WebMD. I I have so many problems. I'm essentially a walking corpse based on the things I've Googled on, on WebMD. Um, but it, yeah, and I completely agree. Yeah. Like we should be able to just go to our doctor 
Um, but most of us can't. And it doesn't matter what country you're in. Um, that's kind of a trend we see globally. And you know, one of the really big concerns I have is that, I, I mean, I'm sure that um, some of the listeners may know this, but there are a variety of, of you know, menstrual cycle related illnesses such as polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis and fibroids. Um, but for endometriosis, one in 10 women suffer from it and it takes the average woman seven years to get diagnosed. Yeah, that's insane. Seven fucking years is absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the symptoms are there. Like the testing is very difficult, but the symptoms are there. When people say they've had a period, they've had periods for 10 days and it's heavy bleeding and excruciating pain, this this isn't normal. That's not normal, y'all. Not normal. Yeah. So let, let's get back to Menstrual Health Hub. So you guys started yes. it. When did you start it and what do y'all do? Uh, we started, so Danielle started the Menstrual Health Hub in, what year are we? 2020. So the Menstrual Health Hub started in 2016. Um, and then Mariana and I joined in uh, January 2017. 2016, 2017. So it's been about three and a half years. So the Menstrual Health Hub is a social impact business. Um, and we have this um, hybrid business model where um, we're part not-for-profit and we're really focused in terms of um, movement building around menstrual health. So um, we do collective advocacy and awareness raising, um, kind of building this knowledge base that you can see um, called the Menstrual Health Hive. Um, and really around like how do we increase like our collective impact and coordination of space because there are an extraordinary man- amount of um, policymakers, activists, research, programmers, um, enterprises and businesses all working in this space, but there's a really strong need for, for sharing um, and, and greater coordination. And so that was the idea behind establishing the Menstrual Health Hub. The second way we work is that we are also um, a gender and female health strategic consulting um, agency. And so we provide a variety of services uh, for, for startups, for investors, um, for governments. And the idea is to actually improve um, the quality, just the sheer number of um, programs, products and services being designed and invested in around um, menstrual and female health. So thinking about the menstrual cycle as an entry point to female health. And so at the end of the day, we, we believe that there are a variety of unmet health needs globally. Um, we need to increase the, the number of innovators, the number of um, uh, uh, what's what I was looking for? Like the, the number of NGOs, like the number of people who are fundamentally um, invested and aware in this issue um, in order to kind of solve um, this, this problem where, where were they come about. And what problem are you talking about in terms of mental or not mental health? Excuse me. Obviously <laughs> another thing I am. <laughs> well, well, another thing I'm passionate about, but menstrual health, what are the problems that are still being faced? So I mean, to be honest, like mental health is a, ends up being kind of a really big critical part of menstrual health as well. So I mean, there's I think the, the number is around half a billion women worldwide who have in, inadequate access to kind of you know the necessary knowledge and, and products to manage the periods um, kind of safely, hy- hygienically, and with dignity. Um, but beyond that, actually. Um, women and girls are still kind of being held back by the period. So whether you're looking at inadequate information, so not really having enough understanding, taboo and stigma, or kind of the lack of access to products, toilets and running water, this really impacts the ability of women and girls, those who menstruate, um, to engage in social activity, um, go to schools, go to their workplaces. And so for us, it's fundamentally about kind of um, – about the gender equality gap, right? Menstrual health is really clear to this gap in terms of sort of how we engage as, as equal human beings because something as simple as our periods um, just completely stops our lives at times, right, or, or in, in, in inhibits our ability to, to be happy and healthy. And so depending on the context in which we work, so, you know, when, we, when we're looking, you know, kind of supporting um, the incredible amount of um Actors who are working in developing countries, you know, they're, they're developing and implementing these incredible, you know, educational programs and providing, you know, providing that educational services and products. And it's fundamentally about access. Um, and then when we're working with um, enterprises, startups, or businesses in high-income countries, what we're really looking at is uh, like the improvement in the kinds of 
the products uh, and services that are available. So the femtech space is what we see emerging in, you know, the in high income countries, and, and femtech is about kind of addressing women's unmet health needs through a variety of different kinds of solutions. And so whilst these are starting to increase, which is so amazing, there's a real need to be thinking about like the, the quality. And for us at the Menstrual Health Hub, what we know is that because of being born with what is known as like the female reproductive health system, we will experience certain kinds of things. So um, from periods, some of us pregnancy, certain kinds of um, sexual health issues, violence, menopause, um, there's a variety of things. And so how we experience those are really impacted of by how we are seen through the world as, as women and what is defined as women. And so we want to make sure that as, as startups, as company, companies are trying to innovate and solve these problems, that they're really trying to do so understanding these kind of complex, this, this complex intersection between sex and, and gender because they're both really critical to um, how women engage with the world but also engage particularly with a product. Mm-hmm. I think I described that in such a complex way. <laughs> no, it's great. It's good. I have some more questions now. Um, so these half a billion women, 500 million women that don't have access to hygienic products for their periods, what are women, these women doing when they have their period? I mean, the, the stories are you know, are varied, but, you know, if we're going to look at the issue of, of products alone, um, we're talking about a lot of like homemade solutions from anything from like tearing up rags and old clothing onto socks full of dirt and leaves. It really depends in what country that you're looking at. Um, what I think is really important to note is that um, access to products is not just an issue in developing countries, which so we do see that in large numbers. Um, when we look at um, countries like the US or Australia or the UK, um, this idea of, of menstrual equity is a real challenge. Like when we look at migrant populations, um, um, women and those kind of living in prisons, is like access to products continues to be a challenge. And if you don't have a sufficient product to to deal with the ble- like the bleeding days, you're not going to school, you're not going to work, you're not going to be engaging in normal activity because the shame of being seen with kind of like blood running down your leg or staining your clothes is so extreme um, that women end up isolating or excluding themselves um, from from society. And so, you know, this is something that education is kind of really really clear. Like we need to understand what's going on in our bodies and what the period is and what's healthy um, and what's maybe, you know, uh, where are their health issues that, you know, doctors can help you with towards having the kind of the necessary product. Um, and it's important, a product that is accessible, affordable um, and suitable for you, depending on, you know, whatever your diverse needs are, towards ensuring that you have um, access to toilet, a lockable door and a place to, to dispose of your products. Mm-hmm. Did the menstrual cup, help at all with accessibility because it's like you can have one cup for a long time versus tampons or pads so the menstrual cup is fascinating so the thing about the menstrual cup is actually it's not a new innovation so the first menstrual cup came about and i think it was the 20s or the 30s Mm. um so it's a very old innovation but it just kind of didn't hit the mainstream and what we've seen in the last 10 years um with an increased understanding of the environmental impact of disposables is is kind of the the reinvigoration or the reintroduction of this menstrual cup. Um, The cup is interesting because this question around accessibility, um, the challenge is is that the initial cost of a menstrual cup is very high. Mm. So if the reason is that somebody can't afford a product, then unless that cup is subsidized or donated or the cost is dramatically reduced, then a cup can still be um, relatively um, inaccessible for for many populations, particularly customers that we call kind of the bottom of the pyramid. Um, But in the long term, if that investment can be made up front, we know that the the cost savings are absolutely huge because one cup on average costs around 25 US dollars in most places. Um, And and women can spend kind of five, six dollars a month um, buying products for their periods. And so, you know, very quickly that the, it's, it's a saving to have something like a menstrual cup. But it is important that um, 
a choice, right? Like we need a basket of choices in terms of product. There, for some people, cups work really well. For others, they're uncomfortable. Um, you know, for women who have possibly experienced violence, you know, the idea of using kind of internal um, products is a really traumatic issue or just people don't like them and that's fine, right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we always need to ensure that here's a variety of different kinds of products and try different things and what do you like? One of the really interesting things about um, menstrual products is it's one of the products that has the highest retain, um, the highest customer loyalty. So if you can catch a girl young, um, a lot of companies end up retaining them over their whole lifetime because women um, don't really switch around all the kinds of products that they use. And so um, this idea, it's its scary. It's just something that you don't want to think about, right? Why do I want to test and kind of potentially make all this mess? Or, you know, if I know that this Kotex pad that I've always used works, what if I try something else and they leak everywhere? And so that fear is often a barrier to kind of buying new products. But for anyone listening to this, there are some extraordinary new companies and products that are out there and it's worth sort of exploring different kinds of options, whether, you know, you're more conscious about the environment and you want to explore reusable pads, cups, sponges, um, or if you just want to be looking at, um, you know, different kinds of disposable products that are looking at kind of organic options, um, you know, those that are biodegradable or compostable, there's, there's a lot happening in the period space. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You um, mentioned something earlier, and it is on our list of questions to go over. Um, Some of our calls in the past, I have said female health, and sometimes I say women's health, and Menstrual Health Hub has a feeling about whether we should be saying women's health or female health. Let's dive into that. What's the difference, and why would it be an important distinction between women and female health? Yeah, I mean, this is always really challenging. We are constantly, I mean, every couple of months, we keep checking in around this issue. So we really believe it's important to talk about women, girls, and those who menstruate. That inclusive language is really, really is critical um, because there are a variety of people beyond kind of the gender binary who also experience periods. And so there are those who um, really consciously feel the need to identify this idea of being seen as a woman or a girl. Um, but there are also those who, who, who these terms um, don't really kind of fit. We use female health at the Menstrual Health Hub, and this kind of comes back to because when we're talking about um, what is happening biologically, um, by by what we see within kind of the scientific and medical space, like it, it is still seen as something that is um, it's sex, right? Which is at birth, we're kind of seen as having either female or male. Um, reproductive organs and it's because of those reproductive organs um, that we end up experiencing certain kinds of of health um, health issues so whilst this raises challenges like we feel that in terms of talking about the the female life cycle um for now that's still grounded in this idea that there are differentiations at a biological level um, but the experience itself like this idea of being a woman is something that's gendered right that that this is something that is really kind of placed upon us and it's socialized into us. And so um, we think when we're actually talking about trying to encourage like innovation, um, at the hub we often talk about innovating across the female health life cycle. Um, and that's because being born with those female, either reproductive organs, sex organs or, or chromosomes um, will end up most likely having kind of one of those issues that I mentioned, right? You menstruation will be maybe a, um, a challenge, um, pregnancy, menopause. There's very specific health issues as as a fee, um, because you have the, the biology or the physiology um, of a female. I would name it. There's a lot of complexity within that. Like we know that's shifting very drastically in terms of variations and even sex itself. Now there's a, a huge move against it, and so this is something that we think fundamentally have to kind of keep reflecting on and kind of coming back to um, and, and asking different questions. But whether you use one or another, it, it kind of comes down to whether you're talking about, the for us, the biological processes or whether you're also trying to include the elements of, like, what's being socialised. So if you're talking about healthcare, it's, it's women's healthcare because regardless of um, how you're born or how you identify, it's like this, it's an experience um, that many of us, you know, are kind of, um, across the spectrum, uh, we'll find when we, we when we go to these when we go to our doctor, and we're trying to access information. So, 
for us, we're constantly reflecting and we're constantly trying to kind of push ourselves uh, and encourage anyone who's listening who totally agrees to kind of get in touch and, and find ways um, because it's it's not easy and it's really hard to have these conversations. It's really challenging. Um, we've seen many companies in this space um, who have either shifted to gender-neutral language um, and then had huge backlashes talking about, you know, women have spent you know, many, many years kind of trying to increase the visibility, but by focusing on women, we exclude, you know, trans, intersex and queer people who kind of are oppressed in many of the same ways as women. And so it's it's not an easy thing to get right, but we need to be daring to kind of having these conversations of bringing together diverse groups and talking about, well, what are some of like the physical health issues and then what are some of these social issues and what kind of language is right for what groups in what, in, in what kinds of contexts? Wow, this is super, super interesting. You know, at the Menstrual Health Hub, you're talking a lot about periods. And so that's a biological factor. So whether you identify as a man, but you have a uterus and a vagina, you know, that it applies. I wonder for Femtech Focus, what kind of wording we should use, because, you know, as you and I talk about periods, I think female, but um, the last episode, I just interviewed the CEO of Misfits, which is a, about bras and measuring the right size bra. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily for biologically born women. Like, you know, a yeah. biologically exactly. born male can change into a woman and needs a bra, you know, that fits them. And so it's like, damn, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, you know, femme tech, hopefully maybe we can do it. Femme is female and femme is like feminine. I don't know. Like maybe it's both, right? Uh, the feminine will get you in trouble as well. Right? Oh, I, mean, I think yeah. this is the thing is we're all, it's it's scary, right? Like it's it's hard and it's scary. I think so many of us, we, we don't want to exclude um, groups. You know, we don't want to further exacerbate um, oppression. Yeah and negative experiences and while we're trying to kind of navigate these spaces, I don't, I wonder sometimes is if it's, it's not about getting it right. Like, I don't know if any of us will ever get it right. Right. Like there are many people who have heard this and say, you have, you're using the wrong language, menstrual health help. And there are others who will be like, yeah, I love this. But I think being able to have this conversation, right. I've able to say, well, this, this is what we're choosing for now. And this is why, and then allowing ourselves to kind of like reflect and engage in, in that debate and then when we feel that things are changing, like adapting our language and, you know, I mean, gender is just one part of it as well. Like, you know, we need to definitely be talking about intersectionality and all these kinds of mm-hmm. conversations as well. But it is, it's uncomfortable, right? It's, it's, it's uncomfortable to be faced with um, our own bias, um, our own privileges as well. Um, yeah. You know, I'm a cisgendered white woman and that comes with an incredible level of privilege as well mm-hmm. and so you know I, I bring that to the table in, in many of these conversations so yeah. I I don't, I don't want you to be afraid <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to find the, the right I think you have to find the right fit like the more of these conversations that you have with different people and then you'll be like okay well this feels right yeah for now and the more times we have this conversation on record the people who think we're using it wrong can feel more, you know, uh, comfortable reaching out to us because, you know, I've always been one to say like, Hey, if this is, if this is wrong, like, please let me know. I, um, my best friend, Laura, Laura, I hope you're listening to this. Um, she is super woke and she is very, very intentional about words. And, uh, we were roommates for three years, a long time ago. And when we first moved in together, I thought, Oh my God, Laura is just so, politically correct. I can't say anything without her correcting me, you know, (laughs) but that's back when I used to say like, don't be a pussy, you know, and she'd be like, Hey, you know, like, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of demeaning to the female genitalia. And I was like, Oh, my God, by the end of three years, I was like, miss (laughs) activist, politically correct, all the things. And uh, because it made sense, you know, she just gently provided me some insight. And I was like, Oh, yeah, words matter. But one of the things, another one she said was, um, you know, and I seriously don't see many people changing this is, you know, we call people without a home, homeless people. And she, you know, she's currently doing a master's in public health. She's working with LGBT individuals in the homeless community. But she says they're not homeless people. They're people experiencing homelessness. 
Like they weren't so it's, destined yeah. and always will be. And like, that's a race or a, you know, it's like, they're experiencing this. That's not who they are. And I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Like it's, it, that's really key. So, um, I started, uh, my career, like the, the very first two jobs that I had was working in HIV and AIDS. And at the beginning, people would say things like, um, like disabled people, right? And it's people living with disabilities, like this mm-hmm. people um, experiencing homeless, like people who use drugs. Um, and it's really important because, yeah, it's not the only defining factor of who they are. And it's interesting, like this idea of kind of like wokeness and political correctness is we really have to remember and name that these conversations are often dominated by Western discourses. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can tend to be like either like quite American centric or Eurocentric and that there's so much diversity out there <laughs> and that we have to be so conscious of that. You could spend your whole life being the most woke human being in, in the world. And I, I'm a bit, like, I worry about anyone who thinks they're woke. I think anyone who thinks they're woke and is white is probably actually not. Um, that's just my little theory. But that you can, you can do everything to think that you are completely and utterly politically correct. And then you meet people from a different culture, from a different religion who just sees it differently. It's not wrong. It just tells you that all of this is really culturally relative, right? Yeah. But it's also contextually um, specific, a lot of these conversations. And yeah. it's, you know, a lot of feminist discourse is is really white. It's it's really mm. Eurocentric. And it's, that's really, really problematic in terms of kind of the experiences of women of colour, of those living in the global south, um, who, you know, who have different voices and have, do, have different experiences. So um, it doesn't solve any of our problems, but I just think it kind of comes back to the idea of, like, there aren't right answers mm-hmm. here. But it's about, like, being able to take the feedback, right, which is when someone says, this is what I would like, to, this is how I prefer to be called, or that language makes me uncomfortable, um, or, you know, like, this is what I'm asking of you, is to, is to not argue, is to just say, yes, like, I hear that you're a human and I can kind of take that on board. That's right. Wow. You and Laura would definitely be BFFs. Um, and uh, I have really enjoyed this conversation around women versus female health, because you guys kept, you know, stopping me and being like, well, that let's feel my health. Well, that's women's health. And so I was like, all right, I got to get y'all on record. Tell me what's the difference. And now, now it's more clear. It's interesting in femtech as well, because, you know, the, the term femtech, uh, you know, was coined um, by Ida from Clue. And the idea behind it was this idea of kind of like innovating around female health, right. Um, And bringing kind of uh, doing that, particularly with a technology lens. But I mean, I think now that the idea is really like, how do we create greater innovation around female health? And I, I do think the grounding of it was that. And then maybe the question is now, is that still, is that still correct? Right. Is that mm-hmm. still the kind of language, but you know, something like woe tech or women tech also feels really wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it, also, it doesn't feel, feel it, right. It also doesn't roll off the tongue very well. No, that's right. Some of this is just marketing, right? You just need to be like sexy and quippy. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons. So, um, you know, we have designed this framework called Women Centered Design at the Menstrual Health Hub. And the idea behind the centered design is that when we talk about human centered design, like male is always the placeholder for human. And there are so many great examples of this. You know, like women are something, I think it's like 70 times more likely to die or experience severe injury in an accident because um, seatbelts are designed for the male body and then they're tested on dummies that are the male weight and the male size, right? Oh and so it's gosh. just like such a simple thing. And then when we look at different things, like, so that's quite serious and you can see the impact on, on women's lives. But if you take a, a phone, like your average phone, is actually designed for a male hand, right? The size of them and the, as they get bigger, it's not actually designed understanding that women generally speaking, and it's not true for all, but have smaller hands. And so that's an inconvenience versus a danger. But there are so many ways that like the design of the world, like neutral design often like negatively impacts women. And so we did, the idea behind women-centered design was like, how do we understand um, the nuances that are needed for women's like physical bodies, but as well understanding like the gendered experience of moving through the world. And so, you know, seatbelts should be tested on female-sized dummies, right? That seems like common sense. 
But also, if if anybody is has been pregnant or has been in a car with a pregnant woman, there's this moment when they get to about six, seven months, and they're getting in the car and they're trying to figure out where the seatbelt goes and where do you put it. And so there's a comfort factor, which is like this whole thing is just broken me and I have this giant belly. From a safety perspective, like do you put it above the belly? Do you put it below the belly? And so these like nuances when we're trying to kind of bridge the gap between like understanding women's health across the life cycle is that we have needs that are changing constantly. Um, and so, you know, women's centered design has really helped us to kind of ground, um, ground innovators who are sort of, you know, creating great products of saying like, Hey, here's a health issue you're trying to solve, but this is how women are gendered and walking through the world. But we do get criticism about this idea of like, why do you call it women centered design? We need more, we need, to think about gender inclusive inclusivity as well as other marginalized groups. But the answer to that was really simple. It was like, because women-centered design, it it makes you stop, right? It makes you wonder, well, why is human-centered design not working? So in some ways it was this kind of shock tactic of, of particularly saying that the norm is not working. And what we really want to do is being pushing against the norm is that humans are not homogenous and there's a variety of groups um, ethnic, religious, gendered groups whose needs are not designed for and neglected. And that's so much innovation, so many startups. They kind of have white dudes in mind. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, and there's, there's incredible markets, there's untapped markets, and whether you're interested in making a profit or you're interested in addressing a social need, that these markets are, there's so much potential here. And so do you mostly work with companies that already have a product, but you're trying to get them to realize their product is mostly for men and not suitable for the female body, right? Or the woman experience? Or are you working with startups that are like, I have an idea and help me design it? So we've worked with a variety. So we've worked with kind of, we have a bit of an idea um, and what does this look like and to kind of direct with a startup. We've worked in accelerator programs where we're helping kind of a cohort to think about either like um, the, uh, the menstrual cycle as the entry point to female health, or thinking about women-centered design to improve either the product uptake or the actual suitable business model and kind of marketing, ensuring it's like ethical and really understanding um, how it can kind of engage respectfully in particular um, with female consumers. We've also had the opportunity to work with some really huge corporations um, who realize like we just aren't doing it right. Like we, we, we want to do things better. You know, we, we want to find, it's not just about kind of finding, you know, new markets that can make money, but they're like, you know, we realize that we've been doing this so long and we're stagnant and we need to start thinking outside the box. And I think a big part of that is because of the femtech space because you're seeing the increase of these startups um, who are challenging um, huge corporations and monopolies and whether that's, you know, a menstrual cup company who's going up against P&G or J&J or even looking at, you know, public healthcare systems and people are saying, no, I'm going to go to the small startup um, who provides kind of like a digital telemedicine service because it's designed by women, for women and with women, and they, they understand me. And so um, I think that has really sort of, it's been a game changer in people realizing that um, that women want more, women want better and they want more. I mean, women's consumer purchasing power is enormous. So women's spending is, it's trillions of dollars, right? They say it's as large as the Chinese economy. And so we have so <laughs> much power and we don't, we don't consciously use it today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we just consume, and we don't just consume for ourselves. We often consume for um, children, partners, other people in our household. And so the more we become kind of conscientious consumers, um, the more ability we have to kind of start sort of shifting those, um, those, those power dynamics that exist where you have huge corporations producing shitty products, labeling it pink and women, and then charging us more, right? Who wants a pink razor for an extra $3? Like no one cares, but actually designing a razor that understands like the fact of like the shape of your leg is different from say the shape of a man's face, these sorts of things, right. Mm -hmm. Of, of understanding like, you know, I don't want to continually, continuously 
um, be disposing of, you know, the razor heads. So I want it in a more reusable, environmentally friendly product. It's like this nuance is kind of, I really think is the future, uh, a lot of, of, of kind of consumer trends. And as women, we have so much power here um, if we choose to use it. Wow. I love that so much. You know, when I first thought about when you said women-centered design, I figured you specialized in like the shape of vaginas and like helping people design things for vaginas and to think like, Oh no, she's talking about seatbelts and like how they fit across my body, you know, or like razors that work are not necessarily pink and aren't for faces, but are for legs. Right. Like that. You really opened my eyes here. I was like, she's a specializes in vagina canals. Like she knows all about shapes of vaginas. Obviously. Obviously, my house is full of vagina molds. I mean, just between you and I and every listener on this podcast, just full. Uh, you see those like crazy hoarders that's newspapers? For me, it's just vagina molds. <laughs> no, I mean, I think this this whole idea behind women's printed design was that they're, if from like a from a kind of the investor or startup perspective, it's like, where is the new next thing? Like, where can we be innovating and investing our money? And so it's like, well, actually, women have all these needs and these are all huge health markets that we'd love you to start solving for. Um, but the second part is you can't just design a product and think it's going to work. Like we're, um, whether it's how women kind of share information. Um, so I think the, the menstrual products is a great one, right, which is recommendations is and reviews from people that you know is really, really critical um, for the ability of women or the willingness of women to try a new product. So mm-hmm. menstrual cross have been fascinating in that regard because I think there's some fact, like they say within like one year, um, most women who start using a menstrual cup would convert two friends. It's anecdotal. I don't want anyone to take that away as a statistic. Um, but it's true, right? People who engage, most people that engage with a cup are like, I love this. I mean, I'm known for being the crazy cup lady because I was like, menstrual cups will save, just save you and change your life. Um, and so like, this idea of, of, of trust mm. is a really kind of critical part to how effective uh, a new business is going to be in trying to kind of position a product. I think a big part of that comes because our needs haven't been, right? Because... Mm. Um, a lot of our pain or our issues have been minimized or ignored. And so this idea of kind of trust and knowledge is critical. And so you can design the best product in the world, but if you don't really understand the right way to commercialize that product and the way to speak to women and do it a brand that resonates, then you're not going anywhere as, as a femtech business. And so a lot of what we're trying to do with Women Centered Design is looking at where are the, where are the health needs, what are, you know? What product do you have, and like, what is that kind of route to market? And then, how do you build a real, authentic, great brand? Because we don't just want a whole bunch of stuff in this space that's just kind of more shit sold to women that they don't need, like vaginal steaming and those egg nuggets that you yeah. shove up there yeah. and this kind of stuff, right? It's like, why don't we solve the things that women really need? Like menopause is this huge challenge. Um, where there's so many areas um, for kind of innovation uh, to menstrual-related illnesses, like I mentioned before, um, fertility. There's just there's so many opportunities for us to be solving like really quintessential health issues here. And it's interesting you say that trust and community communication with women referring products to one another is so key to femtech success for a product. I wonder if it has something to do with like women don't see products promoted on the TV that are necessarily like for them, or they don't see products on Facebook ads because, you know, if it has to do with postpartum, you know, I'm thinking about Super Bowl this year in the United States, there's a, um, there's a company. Um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name. It's, uh, Frida Mama. Frida Mama is a post delivery, like, you know, hygienic, kit for women to treat their vaginal area after they've given birth for that first two weeks after when they go home. And they made a commercial that showed a woman in a restroom and had a baby crying. And the Super Bowl denied their ad because it was just too, it was too graphic and it was inappropriate, but they have, you know, naked models uh, laying on top of trucks, eating burgers, you know, but a woman using the restroom with a crying baby was like inappropriate. And so I can imagine like women need to rely on each other for us, our referrals, because we don't even know what products exist. 
And I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. And I mean, that shows you kind of how entrenched the taboos around our our health, our sexuality, and our bodies are, that advertising has kind of um, reinforced these. And social media is horrendous for this. So Facebook and Instagram is constantly um, removing content, particularly related to periods and anything around sexual wellness or pleasure, and banning accounts. So, you know, we've got several colleagues who run great businesses, and they're like, we have to keep setting up new accounts and do you know what that does in terms of like the relationships that you're building with your customer and it's crazy um it's really crazy but you know a a big responsibility um and somewhat burden on a lot of these new startups is the like demand creation is really about education right so you end up having Mm. to educate someone about an issue as well as the ability of this of your product to solve this issue um, and we've seen that work really well with kind of, you know, many companies. Um, but it's it's a lot on a new startup to not only be like we're trying to build a great product, but also trying to do this element of like let us tell you about everything to do with menopause and give you this space whilst also here's an option that you can use if you want to use it amongst a variety of other kinds of options. Like it's, it's, it's challenging from the business perspective, but those who do it well, those who do really great um, – education that's not just about pushing their uh, own products mm-hmm. um, and glue is an example of this but kind of this like let's talk about women's health let's give you a safe space to ask questions end up with kind of higher customer um, retention rates right because mm-hmm. there's an authenticity in that and it comes back to this element of like, i trust them right i i feel something with this company mm-hmm. like they they hear me is I, I know that we are engaged in like a consumer relationship where kind of you're a business and I'm a consumer, but I also know that you know I'm a human being. Yeah. Um, and a lot of femtech founders come come to whatever issue within um, across kind of the female health because of a personal personal problem they experience, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. many who are engaged in kind of the sexual wellness or sexual pleasure space will say, you know, like I I. I had challenges finding information or I never masturbated until I was 25 or mm-hmm. now I have a friend mm-hmm. who runs a startup um, that's around hormonal health and it's because she had a, um, a hormonal illness that took them like nine years to diagnose and in the end it was because she diagnosed herself and turned up with endless amounts of research and demanded that she be tested for a certain bunch of things um, and then was like, I never want anyone to feel this way again. And mm-hmm. so female founders in this space are, are really motivated by social good, right? Yeah. It's, this combination of like social and and financial profit like people are trying to build sustainable businesses rather than trying to profit off the blitz instead of backs let's say panties are women Hmm. um and um that's incredible and and, i mean yes there are some companies that are challenging like not every we can't just say this as all companies in this space are ethical and great you know there's there's been challenges but a lot of these new startups are you know are being created by you know brilliant and dedicated co-founders yeah a well, lot of women and there are men as well yeah. definitely and you know so we have femtech founders on this call or not this call we're on a call they're going to hear a recording but <laughs> you know if you're listening to this you're a femtech founder be mindful about your brand and making sure you're in a relationship with your consumers and not just yeah. selling them but have a brand that is their friend and you know it is a burden to also be the educator but it will allow that consumer to be loyal to you for a long time is what i'm hearing um yeah and to pick the right marketing like the 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 types of marketing that you do right whether it's whether it's kind of the medium itself or how you market i think like really understanding your consumer will ultimately improve um, the sustainability of your business that's right Well, we're running out of time here. I want to make sure I ask you two questions our listeners love. The first is if uh, someone is an aspiring femtech entrepreneur, they don't know what to innovate, what to build, what to do. What is an area in femtech that you think needs innovation? Oh, that is such a good question. Everything is such a bad answer. Um, so I think a really interesting area is um, around kind of hormonal health. So the stuff around hormonal health has been really, really focused on kind of linked to fertility. Mm-hmm. I think there are a wide variety of places where kind of hormonal health and contraception become quite interesting beyond just women trying to get pregnant. Um, and so I think that's a really fascinating area to think about. Um, menopause. 
Um, and menopause, where it's not just aimed at women who are already kind of perimenopause or in menopause. But, um, you know, I'm 30, God, how old am I? 33? Yeah, I'm 33. <laughs> like, younger women and kind of being able to tie, you know, other kinds of health issues sort of to this other issue that's going to happen later potentially like reduce the, the severity or the negative impact. So, I mean, I think hormonal health um, and menopause are really interesting areas. And then, I mean, for those that have the capacity, I, I think testing and diagnostic mm-hmm. of the Ill, 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 things that are leading to sort of illness are, is absolutely desperately needed. Like it's just an area in which we're lagging so bad um, it's, it requires kind of, you know, endometriosis requires these incredibly invasive tests. Um, but this ability to like improve the, the, the testing and di- um, the diagnosis um, of, of health issues could, could be a radical game changer. Wow. Um, love that. Yeah. I love that. And what do you think femtech as an industry needs the most right now? Show us the money. money (laughs) i just you just throw that cash at us just bags just bags full of cash um (laughs) look (laughs) i mean honestly 90 percent it i i do think that there's a i mean financing of the space is really clear like greater investment um and i mean i think there's a, a stronger need as well for there's an element of of strong research, right? Like understanding what are, what does it all mean going on inside of us? I mean, you can't hear me, you can't see me because you're on the call, but it's like, what is going on, you know, with our vaginas? How does this connect to our mental hormonal health? Like what is really happening? Like what is the real kind of, you know, medical knowledge that we have and really strong evidence is absolutely essential. Um, and then we really do need like greater investments um uh, like a lot of more money being made accessible to to have to kind of grow great great businesses and part of that is this ability for kind of the education of investors across the space of, of why it's critical um i think femtech is seen as a niche mm-hmm. it's just you're talking about 50 percent of the world's population and we're doing 70 to 80 percent of of consumer purchasing it's not a niche market <laughs> If your only goal in life is to make a lot of money, then investing in female health and women's issues That's right. makes a hundred percent. And so, when investors are like, "Is it really profitable?" and I just think, "Of course, it's profitable, right? If, if, of course, it's a hundred percent profitable." You're talking about enormous untapped markets. You're talking about like you catch a girl with a period. Like, imagine if you can create a company. I can design a whole series of products over her lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much potential for improving the well-being and health of individuals around the world. Um, but also from, I think, from an investor perspective, for being able to kind of, you know, see a return on that investment. And so how do we take, um, I guess, how do we as those in a space, um, and this is what's really great about, I think, the podcast um, and Femtech, uh, focus is is like how do we start elevating those conversations, mm-hmm. right? How do we start um, talking as this, as a kind of a coherent space, um, increasing its legitimacy, um, and designing kind of evidence and, and and proof of what some of these opportunities are and, and what the impact is. And I think that'll lead to, to greater investment, whether it's public or private, right? We do need a combination of both. Like a femtech business is probably going to most likely want to at some point, you know, look at debt or equity. Um, from investors, but we still need a lot of public financing of of health services, which is, you know, for many people, the first point of call um, for for healthcare service delivery. And so, you know, I think I think we'll get there, right? I mean, in the last five years, you can just look at Google. The changes, and if you just look from like the tracking of the googling the word femtech. It's crazy, right? It's yeah. We should share that graph. Yeah, looking up how many people have Googled femtech over the last ten years and see what's happened. And you just you see the massive increase, right? Yeah. And that's that's extraordinary. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. You are so fun <laughs> to talk to, and um, I can't wait for Femtech Focus and Menstrual Health Hub to continue to collaborate and maybe you know really build something together that helps the whole industry as a whole. We absolutely can't wait. You know, for us, it's always about, you know, working with others such as yourselves and a strengthening effort and just being able to share our resources. 
um, because that's kind of really quintessential to who we are as the menstrual health hub. And so anyone on this call who, anyone on this call, anyone on the podcast who kind of wants to learn more, connect, provide some um, constructive criticism, please feel free to reach out to myself, Danielle or Mariana. You know, we we really believe engaging um, with with kind of everybody who's out there um, in any way possible. Awesome. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our interview with Milena Batsalia Paryanas, co-founder and chief revenue and innovation officer of Menstrual Health Hub. I learned so much today. We learned about neutral design negatively impacting women. And how can you make sure that your product is built for women? Is in considering female and women users, how can you make sure that it's useful and impactful to them and doesn't negatively impact them? And also, how are you building an authentic and real brand that women can trust? In these quote-unquote taboo industries, having your customer, which is a woman in this case, is trust is the best way to get referrals and continued revenue for your company. Remember, if your only goal in life is to make a ton of money, then investing in women's health is your best bet. I highly suggest you check out Menstrual Health Hub services. They are incredible, whether you are a startup or a giant Fortune 500 company. You can check them out at mhhub.org. Now, I want you all to share this with anyone you think has a product or a product maybe you use that you realize this is not accommodating my menstrual cycle. This is not accommodating the way my hand is shaped or my you know, pregnant belly, send them an email and send them this episode. Um, you can go to our podcast and rate, review, and subscribe and follow us on social at Femtech Focus. And until next time, keep innovating. And remember, improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.